to Children's Church, uh, third grade Children's Church and the ministries uh, to keep them engaged and teaching. A lot of good things get taught uh, during that time. As you open your Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 12, as we consider the new year, is 2020, uh, it is here. And as we consider this new year, one of the things I want us to talk about this morning is next step. Uh, that's what I've titled the sermon this morning is the next step. And as we think about this idea of the next step, it's a very simple idea, the most important step in getting you where you're going, right? That's true when we're walking, right? If I want to be from here to there, what's the most important step? It's this one, right? And now what's the most important step? This one, right? The next step is always the most important step for us to be considering. And that's true whether we're walking. It's also true when it comes to goals for the new year. Uh, maybe goals for uh, maybe losing weight, getting more exercise. Maybe your goal for the new year is to read through the whole New Testament. Maybe your Bible, uh, your goal is to memorize Psalm 34 with the church family. Maybe your goal, yeah, a whole variety of them. But the most important step you can take is the next one. Uh, because the next step gets you closer to where you want to be. And the challenge is we can think about all the last steps that we've taken, and those are all important. I mean, they're all significant, right? Because our last steps has got us to where we are. But seeing where we are and where we want to be requires the next step. And as we look at our passage this morning, that's going to be the context of this idea of the next step. Um, in the context of our passage last week, we saw in Mark chapter 12 that there was an individual who had come to Jesus and asked him what was the greatest commandment. And Jesus told him the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second commandment, he said, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said in chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Which in some ways that had to probably encourage the scribe to recognize this one who's doing all these incredible teachings, who has been doing these amazing miracles, is saying, I'm not far from the kingdom of God. And yet, it indicates that what's necessary? A next step. I can be close to the kingdom of God and yet not be in the kingdom of God. And what had this individual close to the kingdom of God is he knew the commandments of God. He knew things that the Bible taught. He was well-educated in that. He knew those truths, but those truths weren't sufficient to get him into the kingdom of God, only near, near to it. And as we consider that this morning, I want us to reflect on the next step. And where we're going to go with this whole sermon is for you to be considering what's your next step. What is your next step in your relationship with Christ? What is your next step in your relationship with God when it comes to, to surrendering all that you have to him? And so as we work through this morning, we're going to look at what Jesus teaches. And the implication for this for us today is to be asking ourselves, what is my next step? Well, as we think about the ideas of steps, keep your place here and turn back with me to Mark chapter 1. Why I want us to turn back here is to help us to understand that what Jesus is going to be teaching in this passage is consistent with what he's teaching throughout the rest of this book. It's not something new. And this idea of the next step, the first thing we hear Jesus say in this gospel is a picture of the idea of the next step. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus comes onto the scene and he says in verse 15, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. 
And so, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. That sounds very similar to what Jesus told the scribe. You're close. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's close. And Jesus describes the next step in terms of Mark chapter 1, verse 15, as repenting and believing the gospel. And so, as we think about these two ideas, though, but if you're listening carefully, you'd say, okay, Steve, you said the next step, that's singular. Repent and believe sounds like two things, right? Well, let's describe that. Repentance and believing, repentance and faith, are really, in many ways, two sides of the same coin. Repentance literally means turning away. So, if I'm living life on my terms, I love me, I'm living for myself, I hear this gospel call to, to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I know that, but there's a step I have to take, and that step is repentance and faith. And so repentance means this, I'm living this way, and repentance means I'm turning, and I'm turning away from something. But turning away from something is insufficient, right? Because just as I'm turning away, as I'm turning away from something, I also turn what? To something. And then we understand what the gospel is calling us to, that what we are turning from is our selfishness, our sin, and what we're turning to is a life surrendered to Christ. Another way of describing that in terms of steps is, okay, this is really complex. So, how many steps did I take? One, wait, wait, one step, wait, watch my feet. Okay, now you said two. All right, which is it? Did I take one step or two steps? All right, first you were one. Now, so I'll ask the question again. In the common, if you're just watching me, how many steps did I take? You say one, right? What's involved in that one step? There are two things involved in that one step. And so this one step of, of entering into the kingdom of God, this one step is the step of repentance and faith. Just like turning. If I'm turning... I'm doing two things. I'm turning from and turning to. So this idea of repentance and faith is going to flow through this, and the idea of turning from, turning to, is going to help us to understand what the next step that Jesus is calling the scribe in our passage, what he's calling him to. All right, so back to Mark chapter 12. Let's look at this passage together. We're going to begin in verse 38. Actually, I'm sorry, verse 35, Mark 12, 35. Okay? And, and I'm going to read this, and let's look at it together. It says, And Jesus taught in the temple, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I, make, and it may, I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor in the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite to treasury and, wa and, he, and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which made a penny. 
And Jesus called his disciples and said, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. As we listen to the words of Jesus here, that these fall right on the heels again of him saying, you're close to the kingdom of God. And as we're understanding the context, Jesus is now going to help us to understand, well, if you're close to the kingdom of God, what does it require to gain entrance into the kingdom of God? And there are three ideas that we're going to look at this morning as we look through this. And he begins by talking about, in verse 35, he's talking about the scribes. And that is the same group of individuals that the man who'd asked the questions are from. The scribes would be the religious attorneys. They're the people that studied God's Word. They're the experts. You know, they're the guys with their PhDs. They're the ones who seem to have all the answers. And Jesus says to them, because, let me pause here, a little background. The scribes, the people at the time, believed that the Messiah, uh, Messiah also means Christ, that the Messiah was going to be the son of David. They'd read the Old Testament passages that talked about this hope that the people have of this who's going to sit on a throne forever, this Messiah, and they recognize it. And so they're, they're teaching that, and he says in verse 35, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Put your enemies at your feet. And then he says the question in verse 37. David himself calls him Lord. How, so how is he his son? So what he's challenging them with is, in what sense is this Christ the son of David if David calls him Lord? Because do dads call their kids Lord? No, I don't, right? No, we don't. Because kids, they, they don't have preeminence over their dads. And yet David is saying that, that this one who's going to be the Messiah has preeminence over him who is his Lord. And so he says to the scribes, how can both of those be true? Now, he says this, and he's using, in verse 36, he's quoting from the Old Testament. This, he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. And if, look at the passage, it says, David himself, verse 36, I'm sorry, David in verse 36 David himself said in the Holy Spirit. Now, that's given us some indication of what Jesus thinks of the Old Testament. If we would look back a couple chapters, we would see that Jesus is quoting the Old Testament on a number of occasions. That Jesus, in his teaching, he is demonstrating to us that he believes that the Old Testament scriptures are the authoritative word of God. A couple weeks ago, that Jesus used the form of a verb to support the truth of the resurrection. When he quoted an Old Testament passage, when, it, when God speaking from the burning bush said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he used am to help us to understand he not just was that, but he is. And Abraham's been dead for a thousand plus years. Well, how can you be the God of somebody who's dead? Because they're not dead. But Jesus uses the verb form of an Old Testament word to demonstrate his belief in the resurrection. And here, we hear Jesus describing his view of, the, of where the Old Testament came from. And he says, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared. 
And what is teaching us is Jesus' view of inspiration. That Jesus believed that the Old Testament was inspired by God. That it came from the very breath of God. In, in the book of Second Peter, we're told that, that, that no scripture, no prophecy comes about by people's own interpretation, but as the Holy Spirit moves people. And that's why we would believe that the Bible is written by God, that it is inspired by God, that it is infallible, it is inerrant. We have a very high view of the scriptures, and that comes because Jesus had a high view of the scriptures. And so from this high view of the scriptures, Jesus is teaching and asking this question, how can the Messiah, the Christ, be the son of David and David's Lord? Now, we have an advantage. We've been reading through the book of Mark, right? And as we've read through the book of Mark, we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and, and we know we just came off the heels of Christmas, that we know this Jesus, this Son of David in the flesh, who's the son of Mary, the uh, uh, adopted son of Joseph, that they are all come from the line of David. And so we know that Jesus is biologically related to David in the flesh. But we also know that Jesus is more than just a son of man. He's also the son of God. That he has came, he had a supernatural conception, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, that she gave birth, Jesus grew up, and we've listened, he, he doesn't sin, he speaks with authority, he heals blind people, he raises people from the dead, he walks on water, he forgives sins, he does all of these things in demonstrating to us that he is far more than just a mere man, that he is not simply a mere man, the son of David, but he's also the son of God. That Jesus is fully and truly man and fully and truly God. In the book of Romans, keep your place here and turn to Romans with me. If, 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 I didn't say this earlier, but if you don't have a Bible, there's one close to you in the pew. And the passage we're going to look at in your pew Bible is going to be on page 939. And I encourage you to follow along with me. And um, it says in Romans chapter 1, and it's describing the person of Jesus page 939 in your pew Bible. And in this introduction to this book, we get this picture of Jesus Christ that fits with what Jesus is asking and what we're talking about in Mark. It says in verse 3, well, let's begin in verse 1. Romans 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And here's our key, verse 3. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Right, so there's the picture. Jesus is the son of David according to the flesh. That's his biology. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so we see this demonstration that Jesus is the son of man in the flesh the Son of God in the Spirit, these two natures put together in one individual, and that Jesus is this fully God, fully man. And so Jesus asked the scribes these questions. The scribes don't have an answer. The scribes don't have an answer how Jesus can be both because they don't believe Jesus is fully God. And so Jesus asking them, is asking these questions and he's stirring up the crowd and the crowd loves to hear this. But again, the purpose of teaching us this isn't just for theological knowledge, 
but to give us a next step. And the next step that we see in this is that you must, you must know Jesus Christ in order to enter the kingdom of God. The scribe was close. He was near, but he was still outside. And then Jesus introduces who is this Messiah. This Messiah is Jesus Christ, Son of David, Son of God, fully man. And we must understand Jesus correctly if we are going to have a right relationship with God and enter into the kingdom of God. And so that requires a step. What is our step? Our step is twofold, that we turn from wrong ideas about Jesus... We turn from that and we trust what the Bible teaches. I mean, there are ideas that Jesus is he's just a great philosopher. He's a good moral teacher. Um, there are a variety of ideas that some people even say he wasn't, he wasn't even a historical figure, uh, which is ridiculous. But we recognize that there are all kinds of wrong ideas about Jesus. Why this is important is because if you don't know the true Messiah, the true Savior... You can't be saved. We have to know Jesus for who he truly is. And it's not just this Jesus I've made up in my mind and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love the Jesus of my own imagination because the Jesus of the Bible, that's kind of hard. God, man, I mean, you get to Revelation and he's pouring out wrath and stuff like that. I don't like that kind of Jesus. I like my Jesus. Tame, easy, going, loves kids and all that. I just like that part. And so I'm going to pick and choose, and I'm going to recreate the Jesus that's different than the Bible teaches, and that's who I'm trusting in. And I would tell you, if you're trusting in a Jesus that is not the true Jesus, then you're lost. And you need to repent of those wrong ideas. And I would encourage you to study the Scriptures, to ask good questions and say, what does this book teach us about Jesus, about who He truly is? And I would tell you, you say, well, where would I start if I wanted to learn what the Bible teaches about Jesus? My answer would be Genesis 1. Genesis 1, and then keep reading. Right? And keep reading and keep reading, because in Genesis 1 it says, and God created the heavens and the earth, We read and read and read and read. We get to John 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things came into being through Him, and nothing was created that has come into being. And so we recognize who is this Word who He takes on flesh. It's Jesus. Who is He? He's the Creator of all things. And then we read in Genesis 3.15 about after sin enters into the world, we read about a, a, a head-crushing Messiah, a serpent who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And we're like, who's that? What's that all about? Genesis 3. And we keep reading and reading and reading, and we realize, oh, Jesus is the one who's come to fix everything for us, that he defeats Satan, he defeats him, and gives us victory that we must understand Jesus accurately. And so as we consider this scribe who is close to the kingdom of God, what is his next step? He has to turn from wrong ideas about the Messiah and trust what God's Word teaches. Well, as we continue in our passage, he says in verse 38, and in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes. Now think about it. If you're one of the scribes hearing that, you're like... Man, he's dogging on us. Beware of us. I mean, we are the religious authorities. We are the ones who have this all figured out. People should admire us, not be warned of us. But then he tells why. Beware of the scribes 
who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive greater condemnation. And Jesus says, beware of them. He's saying, don't be like those guys. Don't be like the scribes. They have all this religious prestige and they look good on the outside, but you don't be like them. Because what do they do? He says, they like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace. Now think about this. Well, historically, they had long white robes and they had tassels at the bottom of them and all of that designated their significance, their priority, their position. And thinking, what would that be like? Well, that would be like you go into Starbucks on the way to church in the morning. You see some guy sitting in there, and, and he's a Wabash professor. Sorry, John. Um, and he's a Wabash professor, and he's wearing his, his gown, his graduation gown thing, you know, the black. And they've got their, uh, the, the, the collar on that has a different color that demonstrates what degree they have. And it has all these different tassels that all the different degrees they've earned. They've got their little hat for their Ph.D., and they're sitting in there all proper and all of that. And people come in and say, well, doctor, such and such, it is good to see you. And he's like, it is good for you to see me. And all this kind of stuff. And he is there. It's all about his prominence and his significance. He likes the long readings. Hey, doctor such and such. And they, because that's how you must address him because that's proper. He has earned that. They desire that. Sometimes people would, this idea of long readings, sometimes people um, will ask me, say, hey, you're, why do you want to be called as the pastor? And... Um, I say, listen, if you're going to call me something, you either have to call me Steve or use my whole title. And they're like, well, what's the whole title? My kids came up with this for me. But it's Right Reverend Most Holy Second Only to One. So take your pick. Use the whole thing or just call me Steve, right? But, but we recognize what does that to that title. It's like, see how grand I am? I'm great and drawing attention. And that's what these scribes would do. Listen, they knew a lot about the Bible. They did. They weren't ignorant. These guys weren't stupid. But what was going on inside of their hearts is it was all about them. And others needed to know how significant they were. And so they wore these long robes. They liked the big greetings. They took the best seats at the time of worship. And they would sit up front and there in the synagogue, there would be a box or in the temple, a place where they would keep the scrolls. And the scrolls represented the Word of God. And so they would take their seats up next to that because they wanted to demonstrate who's the closest to God here. Well, we are. Look at my robe. Look at the greeting. Look where I'm sitting. I'm significant. It goes on and it says, at the feast, they like the places of honor. They're always seated at the head table. They're always at the head table. Why? Because they're significant. And Jesus says, beware of these individuals. Don't be like them. And as we hear that in the context of where we've been in the book of Mark, we understand why that would be the case. Because turn back with me to Mark chapter 10. What has Jesus taught us about this entrance into the kingdom of God? We've been told you have to repent and believe to enter the kingdom of God, that you may be near, but how do you get in? Mark chapter 10, verse 14. That there were people not letting kids come to near to Jesus. And in Mark 10:14 it says, But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. 
And he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. For truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. Like a child. Not like a brilliant scholar who's proud of all his accomplishments and wants everybody to notice him. We enter the kingdom of God by humbling ourselves. He goes on in verse 42. Look in chapter 10, verse 42. And Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them with their great one, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And so here he's not talking about the religious, but he's talking about the secular authorities and they demonstrate their power and authority. And he says in verse 30, 43, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And he's turning this all upside down, that greatness in the kingdom of God is not about elevating yourself, but humbling yourself. And then he demonstrates in our rich text in verse 45, for even the Son of Man... The Son of Man, the one who has stepped out of heaven, the one that should be clothed in a white gown with fringes at the bottom, the one who should have long titles, the one who deserves to have all the best seats, the one who deserves all of that. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As we see Jesus teaching these scribes and teaching the people how is entrance to the kingdom of God, how does it come? It comes by repentance and faith. It comes by turning from wrong ideas about the Messiah to truly knowing who He, who he really is. But we also recognize that you must deny yourself. To enter the kingdom of God is not about promoting yourself, but denying yourself. And so as we consider what is the step that we must turn from self-promotion, I'm turning from I want eyes on me to deny myself. And that's hard. That, that's hard to do because we can look at these scribes and think, well, I would never do that. But there are a lot of ways we want to be first. We want others to notice us. We want people to pat us on the back and tell us how great we are. I mean, just a simple example. Let's suppose that in your, I'll talk to husbands. Husbands, let's suppose that you have, or husbands and kids, you've decided, okay, mom's gone, my wife's gone, I'm going to clean the whole house. And I'm going to clean it top to bottom. And, I, and you go to work and it's like, get it all done. And you're like, it is, and you actually did a good job. And it's really good. She comes home. And um, notices somebody's coat on the back of the chair. And uh, says, hey, uh, whose coat's that? And um, you think, okay, well, somebody puts a coat up. Kind of waiting around. What are you waiting for? She's going to notice? Going to do it? And, and, and they don't say anything the whole night. And, and actually, that night, as you do it, they're helping like with dinner and stuff, and they like make a mess of the kitchen that you have cleaned. How are you feeling about that? You want to be noticed. I want, listen, I want you to appreciate what I've done. And then 
Because how often do we hear that sometimes in our relationships? I just, doesn't anybody notice anything that I do here? Now, we can look at a lot of different ways that we want to be first. We want to be noticed. Because we can look at these scribes and say, hey, don't be like them. Jesus would be saying to us, okay, look at yourself. How are you serving others? Or are you more focused and more concerned about others giving you first place, serving you? What's your priority? Because those who enter the kingdom of God deny themselves. They deny themselves. And we read earlier in this book, they deny themselves, take up their cross, and they follow Jesus. So Jesus is calling us not only to to turn from ourselves and our selfishness, that we need to understand him. He goes on in our verse 40. He says a little more in verse 40. He says, they devour widows' houses. And and the idea there is that the scribes would often, because they're well-educated, because they have degrees, that there would be widows in the temple who who were hurting and needed some help in some way. And so these individuals would serve as, they would serve as like uh, estate planners, estate attorneys. And as they would serve in that role, they would take advantage of those widows and so that they're getting money. He's saying, don't be like these individuals. And he says, they will receive greater condemnation. And it's a greater condemnation, not simply because what they're doing, but they're to be teachers and they're leading people astray and taking advantage of them. Well, we continue on in verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had, all that she had, to live on. As we see what Jesus is doing here, it's, it's interesting. As he's watching the offerings go on, I mean, he's, he's watching. Sometimes think of that. What would happen? I mean, I was joking with Nate and Jude this week. I said, well, I'm working on this passage, and I think maybe during the offering, I'm just going to watch. Plates go back and forth. Thought, that might make people uncomfortable. I thought it was a bad idea, so we didn't do it. But this idea that Jesus is there, he's watching. He's watching what people are giving, and he's paying attention not only to if they're giving, but he's listening to what they would give. Uh, the, the shape of these boxes, there would be this box, and at the bottom would have a hole like this, and it would come up like this, and it was made out of metal, like a trumpet kind of a thing. And so when money gets put in, it's making a lot of noise. Right? You want others to notice how much you're giving, what do you do? I'm bringing all my change I can, right? Ding, ling, 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 clang, 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 and drawing attention, right? And so there are these people giving lots of money, and maybe they're not all doing it themselves, but some of them are giving lots and lots of money. And as they give lots and lots of money, that Jesus says, you're not doing much. He says that this widow gave more than they did. And you think, well, how could that be? Because this poor widow, it says, she put in two small copper coins. And what's significant about this idea of two small copper coins is that if she had two of them, she's poor, what could she have kept? She could have kept one of them. And if she kept one of them, how much of everything she has is she given away? Half of it. Is that significant? Well, Absolutely. 
But, and so the fact that it's two coins is significant that she gave what? Everything she had to live on. And she gave all of this away. And as she gives this, Jesus is watching and he's listening and watching this woman and she is living in confidence with what we often pray. We pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I skipped a bunch. Um, give us this day our... What's she trusting? Jesus to give her her daily bread. She's living on that foundation. And as Jesus is looking at this, this passage gives us an indication of Jesus' perspective on giving. Uh, one scholar named James Edwards says this, the value of a gift to Jesus is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. Let me say that again. The value of a gift to Jesus is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. He goes on and says, Others gave what they could spare. She spared nothing. Another commentator, Alan Cole, says this, God measures giving not only uh, not by what we give, but what we keep for ourselves. As Jesus is talking about next steps. One of the next steps he's talking about is our willingness to give all. How willing are we to give all? And as we would consider a passage like this, a question maybe to be asking ourselves is, does my giving cost me anything? Maybe another way is, does what you give impact your standard of living? That you have determined that I want to live by faith. And I want to live by faith in what God entrusts me with. And so when God entrusts me with all these resources, I could live up to the standard of living to all the money that I make. Or I could determine, no, I'm going to demonstrate trust. And I'm going to, I could live at this lifestyle, but I'm going to choose to live at this lifestyle so that I can give this away because my love for my Savior. The question for us is significant. Does what you give impact your standard of living? The car you drive? The house you live in? How much you eat out? What cell phone you own? What clothes you wear? Is any of that impacted by your giving? You see, in a few weeks... In our church, the way we do things here is at the end of the year, for tax purposes and stuff, you receive a giving statement. And those who have given this year are going to receive a giving statement. I would encourage you when you get, receive the giving statement and open up to ask yourself the question, does this demonstrate a cost to me? Does this demonstrate a cost? Is this reflective of my love for Jesus? You see, we could say it this way in, in this passage. We, we sometimes, th those who are given lots, we would say, if my income overflows, then I'll give a lot. If my income overflows, then I'm going to give a lot. I believe what Jesus is teaching here is, if my love overflows, I'll give whatever I have. Maybe a good question for us is, what overflow am I giving from? Another way we could read this is that 
that this widow gave more than all the others. Why? Because they contributed out of the poverty of their love. She gave out of the abundance of her love. And as we understand this picture, the question to be asking ourselves is, what does my giving reveal about my love? And listen, it's not primarily about the money. It's about trust. That these steps that we take, these steps, I must know the Savior in order to enter the kingdom of God. As I know the Savior, I must deny myself to enter the kingdom of God. But what else? I have to trust God alone to enter the kingdom of God. And what is one simple measure of my trust in the Savior? My finances. And we would see what is the turning that I turn from from giving some of me. And this isn't just about finances, just giving some of me. Jesus, you can have this much of my heart. You can have this much of my time. You can have this much of this, but all the rest of it, I'm keeping to me. Versus saying, God, it's all yours. I want to be a wise steward of what you've given to me, but I want to give my time and my effort and my energy as a reflection of my love for you. And just so we make sure we understand this correctly, listen, we don't give so that God will do something for us. This is what prosperity teachers teach. If you give, God will do this for you. So you give so that you can be blessed. So you give a hundred bucks and you know thousand dollars is coming your way. That's not why we give. That is not a bit we give not so that God will do something for us. We give because of what He's done for us. Because of what He's done for us. What has He done for us? He's created us. He's given us every good and perfect gift we've ever had. What has He done for us? He has given His Son Jesus Christ the Son of God, the Son of Man, who lived a sinless life, and He took our sins upon Himself and was nailed to a cross and died to pay for our sins. He was buried and He rose again, victorious over sin and death, so that we could have new life. He's given us everything. The challenge for us is, why will I give? Will I give so that God will do something for me or because of what He has already done? And if I understand what he's already done, that I would overflow with love and generosity. And so we consider these ideas that describe who's near to the kingdom of God. How, do they gain, how does he gain entrance? He gains entrance to the kingdom of God by grace alone through faith alone. And what does that look like? It looks like knowing Jesus. It looks like denying myself, confessing my sins. It looks like trusting Jesus alone as my Savior. That's what it looks like. And so when Jesus says to this man that you are not far from the kingdom of God, that what we would summarize all of this by saying that knowing the commandments gets you close to the kingdom of God. Loving Jesus gets you in. And what is an expression of your love for Jesus? You know Him, you deny yourself, and you trust Him. That's what God calls us to. And this morning, I would ask you this morning, what, what is the evidence in your life? Well, let me ask a different way. Are you near to the kingdom of God? Or are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? Do you know these truths? And these truths are things that you would confess, things that you'd say, yes, I agree with all of those. Or are these truths 
that you have surrendered to. That you say, Jesus, my life is yours. That everything I have, I'm surrendering to you. And whatever you call of me, whatever you desire of me, that's what I want. Whether it's to stay put, to go to the mission field, to give more, to, to serve more, to love my wife better, to step up as a dad, to step up as an employee, that recognizing that my faith in God and my faith in Christ should impact every part of my life. And I would ask this morning, are you surrendered to Jesus? Are you surrendered? Have you surrendered all? In just a moment, we're going to sing. And as we conclude the service this morning, I want to encourage you that as we're stepped in, if we stepped into 2020 to consider what do I need to surrender in my walk with God? And maybe it's surrender so you come to salvation. Maybe it's surrender in the, in the growth of sal, in your sanctification to grow more like him. But maybe today that you'd say this morning, I'm going to draw a line in the sand and I'm going to surrender. I would encourage you maybe somewhere on your notes to write down, this is what I'm surrendering. And you can say there's a whole bunch of stuff. I'd say that's good, choose one or two. But also as we sing, I would invite you, if maybe it would be helpful for you to come forward and maybe pray up front just to say, I'm, this is where I am. I would invite you to do that. You can do it where you sit, but sometimes it helps to make a step of faith and to say, I'm just going to do this as a kind of a public way for me. And so let me pray, and then we're going to sing together and be examining ourselves. Have I served? Am I served to Jesus? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the question of the nature of entrance into the kingdom of God. Lord, we thank you that as we come to you, that Lord, we are the kingdom of God by our efforts, but by your grace. And what you call us to do, Lord, is simply to trust you. But our trust in you looks like something. That we know you, that we deny ourselves, and that we trust you. We surrender to you. And this morning, Lord, as we are beginning this new year, it's a time for next steps. And I pray that you would challenge each of us to consider, what is my next step? What do I need to leave behind as I step forward in my walk with you? So, Lord, examine our hearts. Stir us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.